This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 114, entitled Son of Man Christology in the Gospel of John, part 7 of 7. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I will be your host. Hope that everybody is staying safe and healthy and positive during these trying times. And if you are looking for podcast material to consume during your self-quarantine time, be sure to check out our back episodes of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. And if there are any that you feel are worth sharing with your friends, please feel comfortable doing so. We are at the conclusion of our long study of what the Christological title, Son of Man, means in regard to Jesus within the four New Testament Gospels. This episode will wrap up the final references in the Gospel of John. And I must say that this ongoing study has been deeply beneficial for me as a student of Scripture. I have learned to appreciate the nuance that the fourth gospel gives in its portrayals of Jesus as the Son of Man, a Christology that is largely ignored in popular reconstructions of who Jesus is according to the Gospel of John. Our passages today will highlight the representative nature of the Son of Man in regard to other human beings who are drawn to him. How does this contribute to the fourth gospel's depiction of Jesus? We will also explore the nature of the hour of the Son of Man, which has been mentioned repeatedly in the narrative, but will be given the spotlight in one of this week's passages. How does the arrival of the Son of Man's hour contribute to his Christological understanding. Moreover, we will examine various ways in which the Son of Man is framed in regard to his death. How does the death of the Son of Man play into the fourth gospel's Christology? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the Son of Man who is humanity's representative. I'll read a passage out of John chapter 12, starting in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's John chapter 12, verses 19 through 26. It is interesting that the Pharisees in this narrative admit a key trait about the Son of Man, especially since they are not convinced that Jesus is the Son of Man who acts as the authorized human agent of God. The Pharisees acknowledge that the world has gone after him, something we would expect from the description of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, where the human agent acts as the representative of human beings, particularly those human beings who suffer. The narrative of the fourth gospel continues by noting how the Greeks desire to see Jesus. These Greeks were Gentile God-fearers who were in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. As Greek speakers, they naturally try to get in touch with Jesus by speaking with those disciples who had Greek names. Philip, who then goes on to tell Andrew. The fact that Greeks are now desiring to see Jesus, the Son of Man who acts as the authorized revealer of the one true God, moves Jesus to announce that his hour has now arrived. Two points are worth exploring at this particular time especially since the hour belongs to the Son of Man. First, we need to look at the significance of the hour within the narrative of the fourth gospel. Then, we need to look closely at the wording of this announcement. The hour of the Son of Man has been an ongoing, suspenseful plot point in the narrative of the fourth gospel for some significant time. When Jesus is approached by Mary, when the wine was out at the wedding in Cana, Jesus responds, My hour has not yet come. Chapter 2, verse 4. At the Feast of Booths, Jesus is encouraged by his brothers to show himself to the world. In response to this, Jesus states, My time is not yet here. Chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus then says that he does not go up to the feast because, quote, My time has not yet fully come. Chapter 7, verse 8. Later, after rebuking his audience that they do not really know the true God, who has authoritatively sent Jesus, 
the narrator writes, they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 7, verse 30. When Jesus again speaks of the Heavenly Father, who endorses Jesus as the commissioned Son of Man, the narrator again notes, quote, No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. End quote. Chapter 8, verse 20. What, then, can we conclude about the hour of the Son of Man? It is the decisive time when Jesus, the human being who reveals the Father perfectly, is glorified in his rejection, suffering, betrayal, death, and exaltation. It is actually quite a lot packed into the hour of the Son of Man, an hour in which he is to be glorified. Back in John chapter 12, in our current passage, Jesus announced that the hour of the Son of Man has come in order to be glorified, using the perfect tense in Greek. For those unfamiliar with the significance of the Greek perfect tense, it refers to an action that has occurred, but the effects of that action are still felt in the present. So, in regard to the announcement that the hour of the Son of Man has arrived, it indicates that this important time where the glorification is to occur is finally here and that its effects will continue. It is actually pretty important stuff. Readers of this passage should recall that the one like a son of man in Daniel chapter 7 is the human being who receives from the ancient of days glory that all the people and nations might serve him. Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. What we see in our present passage is that the Greeks who are drawn to see and experience the Son of Man leads to the announcement that the time of the glorification has arrived. The connection with Daniel chapter 7 is very interesting to consider. How does Jesus, the Son of Man, unpack the manner in which his hour of glorification has arrived? He follows up this statement in John 12 by mentioning how a grain of wheat must fall to the ground in order for fruit to be born. This metaphor slash parable, of course, indicates the death of the Son of Man, demonstrating his mortality, something that is abundantly apparent from the multiple Son of Man references throughout the Hebrew Bible. The fruit of which the Son of Man speaks is to be exhibited in the faithfulness of his loyal disciples. That is, the death of the Son of Man 
bears fruit in the followers of other faithful human beings. This can be seen in the following verses, where he summons those who serve him to follow him, with the promise that the Father will also glorify them. Thus, we have come full circle. People are drawn to the Son of Man, thus leading to his announcement at the time of his glorification has arrived. This decisive hour involves his death, which brings about fruit in his followers, who, once demonstrating their loyalty unto their human representative, will also be glorified by the Father. This description gives us much to work with as we study what the title Son of Man means within the Gospel of John. Our second point today is the dying Son of Man who draws people unto himself. I'm going to continue reading in John chapter 12, starting in verse 31. Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. John chapter 12, verses 31 through 36. Jesus continues his explanation of his hour that has arrived by noting that the ruler of this world is getting the boot. Overlapping with this is the assurance that when the Son of Man is lifted up, that is, lifted up onto the cross, he will draw all people unto himself. In other words, the death that exalts the human Son of Man is what will bring people to Jesus. We have already seen evidence in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, verse 14 and 8:28, where the Son of Man is depicted as being lifted up, specifically being lifted up onto the cross. And our current passage confirms this reading, as the narrator plainly states that, quote, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was going to die, end quote. Jesus' Jewish opponents offer the traditional argument against the Christian claim, namely, that the Jewish Messiah was to remain forever. 
But Jesus is saying that the Son of Man must be lifted up. How can these facts be reconciled? They wonder. The Jews rightly note that the law, likely Psalm 89:36, indicates that the Messiah will remain forever. But Jesus, on the other hand, seems to state that the Son of Man will be lifted up. From their perspective, Jesus is speaking against the God-given law. So they ask, who is the Son of Man? Of course, Jesus has attempted to demonstrate all along that he is the Son of Man, that is, the human agent of God, fully endorsed by the only true God. From Jesus' perspective, there is no contradiction between the God-given law and the God-endorsed Son of Man. Both the law and the Son of Man bear the authority from the same God. It is interesting how Jesus responds to the question of who is the Son of Man. The answer is not as direct as readers might expect. It involves a subtle reminder that, as the light of the world, those who desire to be sons of light must believe in the light. By implication, those who are not sons of light are in darkness, or we might say they are sons of darkness living without visible illumination and within a foggy error. As the agent of the unseen God, functioning as the authorized revealer, the Son of Man is able to bring those who believe out of the darkness and into the light. So it is the function of the Son of Man as the revealer of God to take those who are in darkness and bring them into light. It is not surprising that the next time the Jews approach Jesus, that they are holding lanterns and torches used to illuminate the way of the sons of darkness who have failed to listen to Jesus. Chapter 18, verse 3. Our third point today is the Son of Man who is glorified in his death. I'll read a passage out of John 13, starting in verse 26. Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, 
he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. John chapter 13, verses 26 through 32. In this final passage within the Gospel of John that mentions the Son of Man, the context is unambiguous about the betrayal unto death. In fact, the text is quite clear that because Judas had left the company of the disciples, Jesus announces he is now glorified. Remember, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14, in how it details the one like a son of man receiving glory from the Ancient of Days. And it is clear that the fourth gospel regards the Ancient of Days as God and the one like a son of man as Jesus. But Jesus is not the Ancient of Days. This final Son of Man passage in the fourth gospel pairs nicely with our earlier passage that we saw today, John chapter 12, verse 23. In that passage, the Son of Man announced that the hour of his glorification has arrived. As we noted there, the verb is in the perfect tense, indicating the all-important enduring effect of a completed action. As we can see in our present passage in John 13, the hour of glorification includes the betrayal and handing over of Jesus by Judas. In other words, the Gospel of John is deeply interested in framing the relationship between the human Son of Man and the God who glorifies him with the events of the Son of Man's passion. Placing one's belief in the Son of Man involves not only understanding that he is the authorized agent of the one true God, but also to understand that the glory of God is manifested in the events surrounding the death of the Son of Man. The reader should take special note of the emphasis given in this passage to the role given to the Son of Man, a human being who is the recipient of God's glory, especially in light of the act of dying. One should not lose sight of the fact that God is working powerfully in this human being, in the Son of Man. And the fourth gospel's Christology and understanding of God is oriented in a way that highlights one God and a human being. An understanding that is far more simplistic than the competing Christologies of the 4th and 5th centuries. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of John places heightened stress 
on Jesus being the human Son of Man. The relationship between this human agent and the one God who commissioned him is crucial for understanding how the fourth gospel functions. We first noted that the Son of Man continues to draw upon the description in Daniel chapter 7, particularly in its depiction of a human being who functions as a representative of other human beings. The fourth gospel depicts, in the words of the Pharisees, the world going after Jesus. We also see Greeks desiring to see and experience Jesus. The Gospel of John declares that when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, he will draw people unto himself. So as the human Son of Man, Jesus acts as the locus for humanity in their need for redemption. In fact, his death will summon men to both serve and follow him. But Jesus functions in this manner precisely as a human being, as the Son of Man. Second, the emphasis on the death of the Son of Man in his being lifted up on the cross and falling to the ground like a grain of wheat insists on a Christology where Jesus is mortal. This is exactly what we would expect from the multiple Son of Man references throughout the Hebrew Bible. But it does not fit well with certain Christologies where the core of Jesus is actually a divine being. The fourth gospel never qualifies descriptions of the death of Jesus to suggest that only part of him died or that he didn't actually die. The complete death of the Son of Man, the human being, is what the Gospel of John repeatedly emphasizes. Third, we observed that the Son of Man is a bearer of God's authority and glory. The manner in which the fourth gospel understands the Danielic Son of Man in its relationship to the Ancient of Days is to depict the glorification of Jesus during the hour of his passion, which includes his betrayal, suffering, death, and resurrection. This entire sequence of events is how the human Jesus receives glory from the Ancient of Days. Note carefully that it is the human Jesus that is glorified using the divine passive, indicating that it is the true God who glorifies Jesus. By portraying Jesus as the human Son of Man, who represents humanity, who suffers the death shared by all mortals, and who is the bearer of God's shared glory, the fourth gospel exhibits what is best described as high 
human Christology. There is no evidence at all to suggest that the Son of Man in the Gospel of John is the human part of Jesus, who is somehow both divine and human. The Son of Man consistently represents the whole of Jesus' person, not some part of a whole. Likewise, the Son of Man Christology indicates a genuine human being, not some fleshly shell that covers a pre-existing conscious divine being who came down to earth. By depicting Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, the fourth gospel is stressing the full humanity of this special agent of God. Join us next week as we turn to a new subject, exploring the origins of the Logos from John chapter 1 within the Old Testament in order to establish the likely pool of text from which the fourth gospel drew. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote these sound truths about the oneness and unity of God, and the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, you folks take care.